Support for this episode comes from Lexus. What emotion fits in the palm of your hand? Can you wield the power of gravity? What does exhilaration sound like? Only Lexus asks questions like these because they believe the most amazing machines aren't inspired by machines. They're inspired by you. Not only has Lexus asked these questions, they've answered them. Discover the answers at Lexus.com curiosity. Lexus. Experience amazing. A warning to our listeners. This episode contains graphic descriptions of gender and sexual violence. As we got to the end of the street, um, there was a car parked in front of us. As soon as I saw the number plate, my heart stopped. And I said to Steve, that's my uncle's car. We need to go. We need to go now. He immediately drove around my uncle's car, got to the bottom of the road. And at the bottom of the road, my husband had blocked the roundabout. And we had this horrible, like, it was a high-speed car chase, and it, it wasn't a game, but it just felt like it was a game, and they were trying to catch us, and it was really frightening because we ended up on this bridge, which is really high up, and it's above a massive river. My husband hit the back of our car, which pushed us into the back of my uncle's car, and we were doing about 75 miles an hour at this time. I was screaming at Steve, just stop the car, let me out. They don't want you, they just want me. And he was just screaming at me, no, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to let them take you. How did she get here? Pursued on a bridge by her own husband and uncle. And what will happen when she needs to ask for protection from people who don't really understand the danger she's in? From TED and Luminary Media, this is Sincerely X, and I'm Sarah Kay. In each episode of our show, we hear a story from an anonymous guest and give light to an idea in hiding. In today's episode, we look at the complicated relationship between equality and difference. It's a fundamental tenet of democracy that every citizen should be seen as equal in the eyes of the law. In an ideal system, we would receive the same punishments and the same privileges as every one of our neighbors. But we all know that's not how it works. There are systemic issues that prevent access to justice. In addition to that, we come from different backgrounds and cultures. And even with good intentions, we can make dangerous assumptions and promote harmful stereotypes. But treating everyone equally doesn't contradict recognizing cultural difference. That's the idea we'll explore today. I just felt growing up like I had a split personality. I was one person in front of my siblings. I was another person in front of my parents. And yet again, another person when I was with my friends. So I couldn't figure out who I wanted to be. Our guest's story starts in a way you might recognize from other immigrant stories. Her parents are from Pakistan. She was born and raised in the UK. A Muslim girl in a sea of non-Muslim girls with rules her friends didn't have to follow. No sleepovers, no makeup, no boys. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that she and her parents had different visions of what her life should be. 
I went to college at 17 and I actually had to fight my parents to let me go to college because I wanted to do sound engineering and that just wasn't something that a girl should be doing and in the end they relented and they let me go um, but they didn't realise it was because I wanted to work with rock bands they just heard the word engineering and thought it sounded really good <laughs> they didn't realise what it involved The next year she decided to quit school and tested just how far she could push After she quit and moved home she realised this isn't what I want I loved the independence too much. I wanted to go back. So straight after studying, that's when I left home again. She knew her parents would never let her live on her own. So she ran away thinking she would just move out. They would get used to the idea. And then they would all go from there. And yeah, that didn't go down well either. I think the main thing is I could have lost my virginity and they would then never be able to marry me off because I'm damaged goods. It's all about honor. After a week, her parents reported her missing. When the police showed up at her door, she told them her parents were upset that she left home. But since she was 18, they couldn't make her go back. So her parents tried to force her. And that was when this tale turned dramatic. My parents reported me to the police for things like stealing money from the house or stealing gold, stealing the family car, and they would get the police involved, but they couldn't do anything. So they would go back to my parents and then my uncles would come and threaten to kill me if I didn't come home. Um, I never took the threat seriously because it was my family. I just didn't think they would do that. I eventually, after three months, went home because I didn't believe that this newfound independence was the life that I wanted, where I was sleeping on friends' floors and not being able to go out, constantly looking over my shoulder and being threatened. My uncle um, came over to my parents when he found out that I'd come back home and he walked into the living room, walked straight up to me, put his hands round my neck and he squeezed and he said to me, I'll happily do 20 years for doing you in for the shame that you've bought in this family. Don't you ever pull a stunt like that again. And that was it. So when you came home and you were finally back under their roof? I sank into depression and I just, I just hid under the duvet for weeks and eventually my dad said to me, you need a change of scenery. I'm going to Pakistan for a holiday. Do you want to come as well? So I just thought, well, you know, what harm can it do? Day two, I had my dad's youngest sister approach me and say, hey, what do you think about this guy? And I was like, what do you mean? What do I think about this guy? She said, well, I just think it'd be really good if you guys got married. It happened again. Then my dad's other sister started speaking to me about it. And then again. Don't you think he's cute? Her grandmother and even her grandfather pushed her to marry this one man. After a few weeks... 
she found out her uncle had told the family they needed to get her married so she wouldn't do stupid things like run away again. This was her punishment for chasing an independent life. Eventually, she gave in. And I said, if that's what you want. All I kept thinking was, as soon as my feet touch UK soil, I'm leaving home again. And that's what kept me going. After the wedding, you know, it's one thing to be, like, theoretical about it and say, like, okay, Mm. I guess I have to do this because my family wants me to. But the second the wedding is over, you're now married to an actual person. What was he like and what did you learn about him? So on the wedding day, I just felt like I was in a trance and I was just being told what to do. And it wasn't until the wedding night when my aunt left me in our bedroom and I just remember just sitting there, like, just frozen. And then he came in and he locked the door and he sat on the bed and he didn't even say anything. And I just looked at him and I said to him in my broken um, Urdu, look, you know, I don't even know you. And I just wonder if maybe we could talk to each other and, you know, get to know each other. And I'll never forget that look in his face because it just makes me feel physically ill if I close my eyes and imagine it. But I just remember the smirk on his face and um, he um, just started to take my clothes off and... (sighs) But as soon as I got back to the UK, my parents were so happy. Oh, well, our daughter's back and she's married and she's a young woman and... And I just thought, oh, my God, what the hell? My parents are proud of me. You know, like I'd grown up thinking that I had never done anything to make my parents proud of me. And I thought, no, they're really happy with me. I need to try and make this work. After a year, he got a visa to come over to the UK. Once he arrived, things only got worse. Like, he thought it was hilarious that... I refused to speak to him after he forced me to sleep with him. And I couldn't live like that. It was seriously messing my head up. Did you ever think about calling the police? No, you can't call the police on your husband because, you know, the possible um, repercussions from that, he would beat me up even more. And also the shame of the police coming and arresting him I would never, you know, my family would never let me live that down. His family would never let me live that down. Was there a moment for you that was the final straw? Um, I think I finally gave up after being married for four and a half years. Um, We'd had another argument because he'd asked me to make his breakfast. And I said to him, yeah, sure, just let me send this text to my friend and then I'll sort your breakfast out. But because I didn't jump up there and then and go and make his breakfast, he started shouting at me. And then he phoned my parents and said, I don't want to keep her. 
my mum then said to me, look, if you want to get a divorce, that's fine. You can get the divorce that you've always wanted, but because you're then going to be damaged goods, no one else is going to want you. So the only person you can then get married to is an old man, like a widower, someone who just needs looking after. And I just thought, well, that's not really a good choice, is it? I can either be with him or I can be with an old man. And it was at that point I thought, do you know what? I've had enough. I, I give up. What did giving up mean? It meant going back home and trying to slip my wrists and ending it because I honestly didn't see any other way out. I just thought, I can't do this. Is that what you tried to do? Yeah. Yeah. And then one of my friends phoned me and I'm going to call him Steve, even though that's not his real name. And um, Steve was my secret friend. I'd met him on a training course after I'd come out of college and we hit it off from the start. But he was a secret friend because, you know, I wasn't allowed to speak to boys and I told him exactly what I was doing at that point. And then he said to me, well, why don't you move in with me and when the dust settles, we'll go travelling and then you can see exactly how beautiful the world is, basically. So within half an hour of um, speaking to him, I packed my bags and ended up on his doorstep. And I knew um, at that point I'd never be able to have anything to do with my family again. To run away successfully, she now knew she'd have to disappear completely. So a few days later, she and Steve visited her best friend to say goodbye. And as they were leaving, she saw her uncle and then her husband lying in wait. Then came the car chase. And then whilst I was on the phone to the police, Steve hit my husband's car, which put it on its side. And so my uncle stopped to help him. And that gave us time to get away from them. Uh, we managed to make it to a nearby hotel and the poor guy on reception, he looked as petrified as what I was, and he called the police to, to come and deal with us. It was only at that point that I took the threats to kill me seriously. When I was 18, I never took it seriously, but I never thought they would do anything like that. I thought it was just words, it was just threats. Did the police show up? Oh, they were awesome. The police were amazing. I gave an eight-hour statement to the police about everything. They were like, oh, this is attempted murder and we need to seize the vehicles and we need to arrest these people. And they told me what they were going to do. And I just remember thinking, everything's going to be okay. Two weeks later, the police asked to meet again. But this time, the whole thing felt different. And then it wasn't until they said to me, um, we're arresting you with perverting the course of 
justice. And I was like, I'm so sorry, but I don't know what you mean. I haven't done anything wrong. Let's pause here. The night of the car chase, she hadn't told the police Steve was driving her car. Because I wanted to keep him out of it because I didn't want my family to find out who he was. She was trying to protect him. She thought that if her family knew another man was involved, that would put him at risk. They were more focusing on that, that I had lied to them. And they didn't understand that I hadn't told them because I was trying to keep him out of it. And then when I started to question the attempted murder, they said to me, what attempted murder? I don't know what you're talking about. The driving offences are going to be um, that we're charging your husband with culpable and reckless driving. And I was just really confused. I didn't understand. And when I asked them to explain, they the police said to me, well, we know from questioning your family that you and your husband were happily married and we were told that you would never leave him under any circumstances. Wow. And we we um, were told by your family that the white boy driving your car had kidnapped you and your family were just trying to stop the car and get you back. And I was just shocked. I can't even, I can't actually find the words to describe how I felt because I just kept thinking, are you that stupid <laughs> you would actually believe that? And that's when they they said the other bombshell, which was, um, oh, by the way, your family have found out where Steve um, lives, so they're going to try and speak to him about your relationship. And it was like, what? Steve just said, we can't stay here anymore. We don't even have the police on our side. And so that's what we did. Did you ever consider trying again with police? Yeah. So when we first moved down, we spoke to my local force and they said to me, well, does your husband know where you are now? And I said, no. Is he likely to find out where you are? And I said, I don't know. And the only way I can make sure he doesn't find me is if you change my details under witness protection. And then they said to me, well, we can't do that because there's no threat made to you. So it just felt like any time I tried asking for help from anyone who was, you know, within the police force, we just couldn't get it. So what did you think needed to happen then? Um, I'm not going to use the same language as what he did, but Steve just said, basically, you know, the police will only help their own. And that was it. With that comment he made, it was like, ah, okay, so that's how I need to do it. I need to be one of them. After multiple applications, she was hired by the police force, and she did feel safer. Now that they knew her and some of them knew her story, she thought if something happened, they'd finally believe her. You know, it just felt unreal. It, but it shouldn't have taken for me to become a member of police staff to get the help that we were entitled to as British citizens. When she was on the inside, our guest got a unique perspective into how the police functioned. And she saw a few things that helped her understand why maybe she hadn't been protected back home. 
One moment that stands out took place when she was working at a UK airport. It started with an all-ports warning. A woman was traveling through the airport who had been flagged for being at risk of a forced marriage. She was traveling to Pakistan with her family, just like our guest had been. The officers went out to talk to her. When they came back, I remember asking them what had happened. I was just horrified when they told me that, oh, yeah, she was with her family. They're going to Pakistan on a holiday and, you know, and they're going to be back before the summer holidays are over and they go back to school. And they were just so blasé about it all. And it was just like, I can't believe this. This is just, this is crazy. So they were reading this situation as nothing suspicious. Everything seems just about right. This person is with their family. They're going on vacation. But you know, you know from very personal experience that just because someone is in that situation doesn't mean that they're not in extreme risk. And the fact that they interviewed her in front of her family means Mm. that it was even less likely that she would have been able to say, help me, (laughs) I'm being forced into something I don't want. Absolutely. So I was absolutely gobsmacked. I just thought, you guys are meant to help people. You know, how can you assess risk if you don't understand it? And it was only like a few weeks prior where I'd just been chatting to an officer who worked in um, criminal investigations. And it was just, you know, just having a chat about honor-based violence. And he made a comment, oh, that sort of stuff doesn't happen here. And it was like, are you for real? You know, what do you mean it doesn't happen here? Of course it happens here. It happened to me. But instead of saying that, I just thought, I need to do something. Our guest created a briefing document to teach her colleagues about honor-based violence. Yeah, to educate them. Um, and also that there are so many races and religion um, where, you know, it could affect somebody. It could be somebody from the Middle East. It could be somebody Eastern European. It could be anyone. So for me, the biggest point to drive across was if somebody is in front of you asking for help, you need to believe them Because if they have someone asking for help and they turn that person away, that person might not get another chance. To help officers protect these women, she wanted them to recognize the nuance of honor-based violence. So when they were in this situation again, they could see it for what it was. But she also wanted to be careful. In addition to noticing that these officers didn't understand honor-based violence, she also had a suspicion something else may have been getting in the way. I think um, a lot of people, when they just hear the words Muslim women, just automatically think of women that are oppressed and don't have a mind of their own, and they're just doing what they're told to do. So they don't realise that that Muslim woman is a person in her own right and she has her own mind and she's got the right to live as freely as the next person. In a moment, we'll hear from an expert who agrees that protecting people from another culture who are vulnerable is complex. 
and warns the way to do it might not be as obvious as it seems. I'm Sarah Kay, and this is Sincerely X. So far, we've heard the story of an anonymous woman who left a forced marriage and experienced aggression from her family that became so intense, she now lives under an assumed name. Her ordeal was traumatic and terrifying. And then when she sought help, she was faced with a type of misunderstanding or ignorance that proved to be its own kind of danger. This is Dahlia Magahed. Hello. This is Dahlia. <laughs> Hi, Dahlia. This is Sarah Kay. Dahlia has done research on Muslims around the world and is an expert on cultural competency. I actually took a workshop from her on the subject a few years ago. I've also done a lot of research on Muslim communities globally. Uh, when I was with Gallup, and I co-authored a book called Who Speaks for Islam? What a Billion Muslims Really Think. After I spoke with our guest, I thought I had a grasp on this problem. But when I spoke with Dahlia, she challenged me to think much more broadly. She said that, yes, teaching about honor-based violence to officers is important. But something else is missing here. And if you really want to support someone from another culture, you cannot miss that layer. I actually classify all honor-based violence as a type of gender-based violence. And uh, it's important to both be aware of the nuances but not to allow the nuances to make us respond in a fundamentally different way. Because the way that we should respond to it, regardless of its subcategory, is really very similar. It's about believing women. It's, um, it's about um, getting people to a safe place. It's about being knowledgeable about what would put someone at risk, for example, um, speaking to them, if it's law enforcement, speaking to them in front of the perpetrator. None of these things are unique to honor-based crimes. They're, they're a function of gender-based violence, where people um, are afraid of their spouse or their boyfriend or um, a family member. They, they can't be... Um, open and, and, and transparent about the fact that they're asking for help. I mean, all of these things are not unique in any way to honor-based violence. So while I think it's okay and, and in fact needed to, to understand maybe the nuance, I don't want law enforcement to get lost in the nuance and think that it's so unique that they should be reacting to it any differently. So we want to understand the specific risks of the situation— without missing the bigger picture. But when it comes to interacting with cultures we may not be familiar with, just seeing what's in front of us for what it is takes active effort. Because Dahlia says our entire psychology is built to think differently when we interact with people from a culture different than ours. Our brains work to create shortcuts, and those shortcuts manifest in, in unintentional bias. Dahlia shared two concepts that may help make sense of this, called fundamental attribution error and ultimate attribution error. What it is, is basically when I do something wrong, when I exhibit 
negative behavior in some way, I will give myself all kinds of excuses that are outside of me, that are circumstantial. Um, you know, traffic was really bad or it was raining or, um, or I had a bad childhood, whatever it is. We give ourselves and, by extension, members of our group all these environmental reasons for bad behavior. Mm. But when it's an outgroup, when it's a group that is not a part of us, it's not me and it's not part of my group, we have a much more, uh, much more likely to attribute their behavior to something intrinsic to them. They are, um, and by extension, their group is flawed and bad. While we would never take an individual acting badly from our group as reflecting on our group. So this is why when, you know, after a horrific mass shooting perpetrated by a white guy, we will hear a lot about his mental health, um, about his horrible childhood, how he was bullied, and then just gun violence, you know, gun violence as a problem that is also outside of him. It's a societal issue. He was a bug. He was not, he was not a, a feature of, of white culture or white men. When it's someone else, we don't offer them that same benefit of the doubt. We don't offer them that same interrogation of their environmental um, circumstances and the things that may have caused them to behave that way that are outside their control. We attribute it to what is intrinsic to them. So, in other words, many non-Muslims hold a stereotype of Muslim men as being intrinsically oppressive or violent towards women. This stereotype even causes some non-Muslims to regard Islam itself as an inherently violent religion. But this isn't the case. In our research, we found that Muslim women are as likely as Christian or Jewish women to say that they are, um, they've experienced gender-based discrimination. So if you're a woman in America, about half of us say that we've experienced some kind of discrimination because of our gender in the last year, and Muslim women are no different. Where they stand out, where they're different, is they are far more likely than any other group of women to have experienced uh, racial discrimination and religious discrimination. And they're more likely to have experienced racial and religious discrimination than gender discrimination. So their primary threat that Muslim women face is from Islamophobia. And so the irony in all of this is that Islam's alleged outdated views of women is the most salient anti-Muslim stereotype among the general public. It's more prevalent than any other negative stereotype about Muslims. So you have this situation where people's supposed um, concern for Muslim women and their treatment fuels a bigotry against the community that results in Muslim women being targeted by hate. 
And so they, they're the victim in so many different ways. Based on the research she's done in the United States, Dahlia knows that Muslim women are no more or less likely to experience gender-based discrimination than women of other faiths. Despite this fact, there are many non-Muslims who associate Islam with gender-based discrimination. When they hear a story of a Muslim woman experiencing violence or oppression, they just assume that it's a feature of Islam, not a bug. That assumption is not only incorrect, it's also dangerous and causes real harm. It's how we end up with a particular type of rhetoric among non-Muslims who claim that they are concerned for the safety of Muslim women at the hands of Muslim men. But that supposed concern is formed around caricatures and stereotypes and not based in reality or understanding. And those narratives encourage and embolden Islamophobic thinking, threats, and acts, the victims of which are often Muslim women. The, the goal is to protect the vulnerable from both the violence perpetrated against them and then also the ignorance that prevents them from receiving the protection that they deserve. Yes, the ignorance that prevents them from receiving the protection that they deserve and the ignorance that fuels hatred against their community that often results in particularly women being targeted. Our guest, when she was thinking through, you know, what what should be done differently, what could be done differently, she kind of offered two main solutions, that law enforcement needs to ignore culture or treat someone as a citizen with the same rights afforded to all other citizens without a regard for the specific culture that they come from. But then she also said that they need to be educated about the culture they're policing. And I'm curious, how do you reconcile those two ideas that you should simultaneously ignore culture while being aware of culture? Well, I actually completely agree with the idea of ignoring culture in in that when you're holding people accountable for committing crimes, they should be treated as citizens with the same rights and responsibilities as everyone else. Um, otherwise, we're creating second-class citizens and, you know, different citizens, and, and that is very problematic. So I think we have to ignore culture in terms of um, accountability. But we have to keep culture in mind in terms of engagement. And so I, I guess that's how I would reconcile the two. Um, when it comes to accountability, a crime is a crime is a crime is a crime. And when it comes to engagement, we have to engage people and interact with them and communicate with them um, knowing about their culture. And that goes with anybody. I mean, that that's not just Muslim communities. That, that could be any community. So I don't think this is a new ask. It's not a new requirement of law enforcement. They they have to know where they're walking into, what the, the norms and the realities are in that group. Um, and it's no different with Muslim communities. And so it's about cultural sensitivity and knowledge of culture in, in the way we engage, but that we provide equal treatment for equal conduct when it comes to accountability. Yeah. 
Can you tell me beyond just this story, what are the mistakes that you see people make in attempting a superficial cultural sensitivity as opposed to the real work and that real cultural competency that we're talking about? What are the mistakes that people make when they're just trying to skirt by? I think some some mistakes that we make um, in our attempt at cultural sensitivity is responding to a very uh, caricature-type image in our minds of what that culture is about. And it, it can look like using strange greetings or, or assuming certain things that aren't true. It's about not allowing another culture to be as rich and as complex as we are. It's about reducing people to a caricature versus a full human being. And the more we can be conscious of this tendency that we all have with with cultures that we're not familiar with, the more we can avoid it. Familiarity, um, exposure, proximity is really the best way to overcome this tendency. Sincerely X is produced by Magnificent Noise for TED. Our production staff includes Kim Naderfane-Petersa, Destry Sibley, Eva Walchover, Noor Waswas, and Chloe Shasha. With the help of Angela Chang, Janet Lee, Michelle Quint, Jesse Baker, and Colin Helms. Special thanks to Meg Bowles for finding our anonymous guest. Our fact checker is Lorena Aviles Trujillo. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. I'm Sarah Kay. And this is Sincerely X.